This is the East TraumaCast. The East Online Education Committee would like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous, unrestricted educational grant to support the TraumaCast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the East TraumaCast. My name is Red Hoffman, and I'll be your moderator today. Today, we'll be talking about burn care. In 2016, over 450,000 people received treatment for a burn, yet there are only about 120 burn centers in the United States, about 70 of which are certified by the American Burn Association, meaning that the majority of burns are cared for by those who do not work in a burn center, have not completed a burn fellowship, and do not have the benefit of experienced burn nurses. So we're here today to get some tips and tricks from the experts, which will help us care for our burn patients. Let's start with some introductions. Callie? Hi, I'm Callie Thompson. I am the director of the burn center at Vanderbilt and a burn surgeon. I've been a burn surgeon for the last four years. I trained in Seattle with Lindsay, and I'm really excited to be here and talk about burn. Thanks for being here, Callie. Lindsay? My name is Lindsay Dieter, and I am the medical director of the Western States Burn Center in Greeley, Colorado, and I have been there for about five years, and initially started uh, with an interest in burns with the Arizona Burn Center in Phoenix, and then went on to do my fellowship at Harborview, uh, where Kelly did. Excellent. And Leslin, our favorite burn nurse. <laughs> uh, my name is Leslin Weiss. I'm an RNCCRN. I have retired from nursing at the burn center. I worked there for 25 years at the Arizona burn center. And now I work various ICUs and PICUs around the greater Phoenix metro area. I'd be remiss if I did not give a shout out in memoriam to our chairman, Dr. Daniel Caruso, who was also an amazing burn surgeon and taught myself, Lindsay and Leslin, everything we know. So that's all. Amen. To you, Dan. <laughs> Thank Amen. you. Amen. <laughs> All right. So we'll get started. First patient I want to talk about is a 25-year-old presents to a level one or a level two trauma center without a burn center, status post MVC, multiple injuries and burns on his torso and bilateral upper and lower extremities. Where do we start? What do we do here? Callie? So I think the important thing to remember about burns, and this is what I always tell people in the Bay, is if someone has arrived to you with burns and their airway is either intact or secured with some kind of airway securement device, they've already cleared the first hurdle and their burns aren't going to kill them. But if you have a concern, at least in the short term, if you have a concern for a traumatic injury, you have to address that and not get distracted by the burn. So the ABCs don't change just because you add a burn in. You still do airway breathing circulation. The one difference for this patient is that for burns, you have two circulation issues to address uh, when you have trauma involved. You have a hemorrhagic shock potential and you have their hypovolemic shock from their burn injury that you have to address. And you address those things in parallel. So if you are giving blood for hypotension because you're concerned about hemorrhage, you give that while you start the resuscitation for their burn, which is going to be a more continuous, prolonged resuscitation that's going to be proportional to the patient size and the burn size. 
No, I think she said it really well. I think the most important thing, like she said, is to ensure that you don't get distracted by the burn. A lot of people see a burn patient walk through the door and they're so uncomfortable and worried about it that they neglect to take care of other more short-term life-threatening issues. And so making sure that you address the ABCs in your usual fashion and ensuring patients acute traumatic injuries are cared for while starting your burn resuscitation in the short term is truly most important. So I have two follow-up questions to that. One, what if a person has a burn on their torso? How do I know if it's impeding their ability to oxygenate and ventilate? When do I need to start thinking about fasciotomies on that patient? So again, that's something that you initially manage the other potential traumatic injuries first. If you are concerned about it, things that should kind of pique your interest to think about that would be circumferential third degree burns around the torso. If patients start having a difficult time oxygenating and ventilating, at that point you could consider fasciotomies. Also consulting with your nearest burn center is also going to be something that's really going to behoove you. Escherotomies don't necessarily happen automatically in the short term. And so, again, making sure you're addressing those other traumatic injuries first is going to be the most important aspect of that patient's care. And then, Callie, you talked about starting an appropriate burn resuscitation. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? We all learned the Parkland formula sometime in residency, but can you refresh us on that? The formulas are a little bit of a local thing. Every burn center is going to have a little bit of a variation. When I'm teaching about this, I just revert back to what the ABLS formula is because I think it is most widely taught. So the ABLS consensus formula is two cc's per kilo per percent burn. And that's an estimate of the 24-hour resuscitation needs. And just like you did in the initial Parkland-Baxter formula, you give the first half of that in the first eight hours and the second half in the subsequent 16. But really that formula is just to give you that first hour. Everything else you do after the first hour is completely dependent on the patient's response and the patient's physiology. So that's for adults, the two cc's per kilo. For kids, the ABLS formula is three cc's per kilo. And then for electrical injuries, because electrical injuries, the external cutaneous burn is not going to be the whole story. There's going to be deeper soft tissue, muscle, fat injury that's not going to be apparent. So you start them at four cc's per kilo per percent burn. Um, And again, all of that is just an estimation. Uh, After that, you're just going to follow what the patient does with it as far as their urine output and what their blood pressure does. And I seem to remember that we want to target a higher urine output in these burn patients rather than that typical 0.5 cc's per kilo per hour that we're looking at in most of our surgical patients. Is that correct? For adults, we typically target 30 cc's per hour, just in general. We don't have a lot of guidance as far as the morbidly obese patients. A lot of the data that exists is retrospective, and the picture is still very unclear as to if their urine output really needs to be higher because they have more adipose tissue. So what we shoot for at our burn center is any person, any human being over 30 kilos, their goal is 30 cc's an hour. For kids, their goal should be one cc per kilo per hour until they're 30 kilos, and then they don't need a urine output higher than an adult's. 
And Lindsay, is that what you do at your burn center as well? That's exactly what we do at our burn center. For electrical injuries, we will shoot for a higher urine output. That's usually when that higher urine output goal comes in, and the ABA tends to recommend 50 to 100 cc's an hour. And again, that's because of the underlying injuries. Like Callie mentioned previously, you're not going to necessarily just have the cutaneous injuries. You can have underlying injury, um, in particular to muscle, and this is in an attempt to try to prevent any um, rhabdo or kidney injury. All right. And then is there any role for albumin during this initial resuscitation? It's a, I think a case by case basis as far as brain centers. Callie, what do you do you guys use albumin or no? We use albumin as a rescue when they're on double what their estimated darting rate was. So we use it very similar to um, there's an ongoing randomized uh, multi-center trial with the ABA looking at albumin use during resuscitation. And we've kind of copied that resuscitation protocols, which actually I think originated at the University of Utah with Dr. Saffel. Once we reach that double what their starting rate was calculated at, we give them a third of their hourly rate as albumin and two-thirds as crystalloid. And we also use it as a rescue, not quite in that way, but we definitely use albumin as a rescue when patients are requiring more crystalloid than initially calculated from their resuscitation formula. And then is there any role in a patient like this, say a car accident who had prolonged extrication, so was trapped in a closed space where worried about inhalation injury, the patient's already intubated, but is there any role in early bronchoscopy to determine whether there is truly an inhalation injury? Is that going to change your resuscitation at all? We bronch patients early if we have a concern for inhalation injury to evaluate the extent of it. We know that patients who have an inhalation injury in addition to a couple other injuries or scenarios as well will have a higher than expected calculated resuscitation need. The bronch, however, isn't going to help you determine quite the extent of exact change in your resuscitation um, fluid amount but it will let you know what's going on in there. You can also start some other adjunctive treatment for those patients, but that's, that's what our brain center does. Yeah, we do, we do the same thing. So we do bronx within 24 hours because things can change very quickly. You can have something that looks terrible. It looks like, a, say, a grade three inhalation injury. And two days later, you, you don't see the same findings, but their PDAF ratio still may be diminished. There's a couple of papers, including the, the fluid creep paper that really put burn surgeons in their place. Um, basically, it told us that we're really terrible at <laughs> estimating on our own how much fluid a patient needs, and we just need to stick to the formulas. Um, so things yep. like <laughs> inhalation injury, patients being intoxicated, otherwise dehydrated at the time of their injury, patients having deep burns, concomitant trauma, they do need more fluid, but we should just follow what the patient tells us as far as urine output and blood pressure and not try to think independently. <laughs> So we'll switch scenarios a little bit. We'll say that this patient is stabilized from his traumas. As we're getting ready to transfer this patient to a burn facility, what do you suggest if we're not going to be treating the burns at our trauma center? How should we dress these burns? What should we be putting them in? So I tell everybody warm and dry. That's, That's the only thing... I instruct anyone, if there's circumferential extremity burns, I have them elevate for transport. 
but my preference is to avoid. So this is outside of a chemical component, obviously, because things would be different, but I don't want people wrapped in wet dressings because they're going to end up hypothermic by the time they arrive. And I don't want them in a bunch of ointment because I'm just going to wipe it off so that I can evaluate their burns myself when they arrive. And it just puts patients through two wound cares, painful procedures that are unnecessary. So keep them warm, wrap them in blankets and send them our way. The only other thing I would add to that is we've had people sometimes show up with some really tightly wrapped dressings, like really tightly wrapped curlex. So just making sure to remind them also to, if they are going to wrap them with Perlux, to wrap it loosely just so that we don't create a tourniquet effect or compartment syndrome just from the patient's dressing. And then what is your philosophy on burn debridement once they get into your facility? And I am guess I'm wondering immediately or waiting, and then do you do quick cases with daily takebacks or do you do longer cases to get more done? So I believe in debriding everything when they get to the burn center. I don't leave blisters intact. So they get their initial debridement um, and wound care right at the time of arrival. And then our goals at the burn center I'm at now, if it's a over 20% burn, our goal is to have their first excision within three days and all of them excised within seven days, just following the early excision principles. I basically just follow the patient's physiology. So if a patient in the operating room is tolerating their excision, I will excise them, just continually check in with anesthesia and say, how are they doing? I've just finished an arm. I'm going to go to the other arm now um, as long as they're doing okay. And I I just kind of play it by ear. There was a lot of dogma that you should never excise more than 20% in a single trip, but there's a lot of young, physiologically healthy patients that tolerate that excision, number one. And number two, do a, a whole lot better once you get that burn off. We follow pretty similar protocols. Again, everybody who walks through our door, just like at Cali's Burn Center, ends up with an initial shower and wound debridement and dressing changes. And then again, anybody greater than 20%, we shoot for within 48 to 72 hours for initial excision and then complete excision of um, excisable burns by seven days. There are some burns that come in that have areas that need a little bit longer time may end up healing. And so, especially in a lot of our bigger burns, we have left some of that on there while we're we're being more focused on the areas that are frankly third degree and need excision. And again, just like Callie said, we pay attention to the physiology and if patients are tolerating things well, you can be more aggressive and continue to excise and, and have a longer OR case, but it all just really depends on what the patient is showing you. So I seem to remember from my training at Arizona Burn Center that a lot of facial burns, they tended to sometimes not excise and to try to just let them heal on their own. Any thoughts on that? Is that something that you all do or do you excise those as well? We do excise them. I tend to wait longer on those to excise rather than starting with the facial burns. We've also had some success with some of our deep second degree facial burns and a product called Resell that we've started using that has actually helped us limit more so our facial excisions and our, our traditional skin grafting and auto grafting. And so we've been using that more frequently with some of our deeper facial burns as well. What about you, Kelly? 
Yeah, I do similar. I don't jump, especially if it's a big burn. I don't jump right to the face primarily because there's just not going to be skin. You have to do a sheet graft to the face and there's not going to be a lot of skin available for grafting. And there's parts of the face that actually will surprise you. The forehead in particular is very well vascularized. That's why they use, they yeah. are able to take a forehead flap or nose reconstruction and leave that donor site open and it heals. Um, so the foreheads will frequently surprise you and, and heal better than you think they will. And it's just, there's not always skin for grafting of the face readily available. We've also been using resell like Lindsay and have had some success. We're not being aggressive about tangential excision in those burns. We'll maybe take them and dermabrade them uh, and see if we can't get back to bleeding dermis and use an autologous epidermal replacement like resell. Leslin, a question for you. One thing <laughs> I, when we're talking about these initial burn dressings when patients are coming to the burn center. One thing I remember just being so surprised by when I was a resident at the burn center was how much medicine these people require during their burn dressings and how I think generous and understanding the burn nurses were. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the philosophy of pain control during these dressing changes. <laughs> the philosophy of pain control. <laughs> it, my dream would be that zero pain would be happening, but you know we, we're constantly watching and working with the because physical therapy comes in during dressings to work with people too. Maybe limiting people to one limb at a time and going very slowly and trying to yes pain medicine, yes a blood pressure, and yes get everything done that we need to do. <laughs> I think it's like the number one thing in the back of my head constantly when working with somebody who's infirmed, knowing that everything I do is going to hurt. I think it's just interesting to think about, especially during this, you know, in the last couple of years around the opioid epidemic, that there's still some things that require massive amounts of opioids to control yes. pain. And I feel like burn, especially in that early phase, is one of them. Yeah, indeed. We have lots of questions from our patients about pain control and people being worried about the opioid epidemic. And I tell them that one of the things that burn surgeons actually, I think, do really well is wean patients off of their pain meds. And so I feel like that's something we can contribute to this and talk to our patients about as well is that obviously you have a reason to have pain right now. I mean, this, this is a very painful injury. But we also have a really good track record of getting patients off of long-term opioids and pain control. And so I think that by talking through that a lot of times with patients, you can also really make big strides in managing pain for patients who are really, really leery about taking opioids. You know, early medication as far as I, I'm, I'm guessing, Kelly, you probably do it similarly too, is early um, oral medications. You'll treat patients about 45 minutes or an hour before their wound care with oral pain meds, but then also make sure that you have IV pain meds available for them throughout their wound care. And a lot of times if it's too painful, we can also manage that with anesthesia at the bedside and we can do some deeper sedation for patients either using propofol, ketamine, Presidex, Versed, different things like that as well. I think the other thing that, that we do really well is multimodal pain control. Burn surgeons were doing yeah. multimodal pain control before I think the whole opioid epidemic conversation started with the benefit of multimodal 
pain control because we we understand that there are multiple different types of pain that we need to address in patients. And if you have a big burn, you come in with a big burn, I start long acting opioids within the first three days of their hospital stay. And 99% of people are off of them when they leave the hospital. It's just, it really helps them through that acute phase. But we also treat neuropathic pain. We treat itch. We treat the anxiety. Anxiety. With with their procedures (laughs) and with the massive amount of unknown and loss of control. I mean, there's, there's a great psychological component to this. And while we didn't always recognize that, even as a society, I think burn has been on the forefront of really addressing the psychological challenges of injury. I think also using distraction techniques are also very important for patients. We have music that's piped into our showers as well as our burn unit for kids. You know, we have a child life therapist who's there and doing play therapy. We also have found, I think a lot of times that by giving the patient control to, you know, wash their own arm or do their wound care on that extremity is also really helpful and can help treat some of the anxiety component that goes along with this that Callie mentioned, because that is a huge factor for a lot of patients and just being able to have some control, especially a lot of our bigger burns when patients really don't have lost a significant amount of control over their life and just being able to give that control where you can for these patients has been a huge benefit too. So we're going to switch scenario again and I think Callie had mentioned electrical burns before. So I want to talk a little bit about them. We'll say, again, relatively healthy 50-year-old gentleman, say a lineman who is working, comes in with a electrical burn, ends up in our trauma center that, again, does not have a burn center. What are the things that we in the trauma center need to be thinking about while we are getting ready to set up a transfer to a burn center? I think the number one thing to remember is that, especially high-voltage electrical engine, 1,000 volts is the way that we talk about high voltage versus low voltage, those injuries are associated with a fair number of traumatic injuries. It's just wild how many traumatic injuries you can get. You can get spine fractures. You can get splenic rupture. You can get pneumothorax, hollow viscous injuries. There's really no end to the potential traumatic injuries. So electrical injuries, high voltage electrical injuries should be treated like a trauma first and foremost. You really have to rule out that they don't have something else going on. They are a little bit more complicated because they can have cardiac components to the electrical injuries, which can cause hypotension and it really cloud the picture. But after you get through your primary and secondary survey on electrical injury, they should be resuscitated at that higher rate of resuscitation. And then you should get an EKG to look for any rhythm abnormalities. The most common is going to be nonspecific ST changes. Atrial fibrillation is not uncommon with a high voltage electrical injury. And you do everything exactly the same. Years and years ago, people used to say, oh, you know, you shouldn't do ACLS on an electrical injury. And that's not true. There were people who were holding back on CPR when, or shocking them when they had a, a rhythm that should be cardioverted just because of worry that was has not panned out in the literature. So ACLS, if they're in an arrest, make sure you remember that they're a trauma first and then start them on that higher resuscitation. And then I, I'm sure Lindsay has something to add. The other thing I, I would add is um, evaluating the extremities because uh, these are patients who 
could require a fasciotomy instead of an escherotomy, which is obviously a more invasive operation. And if you have a long transport time, shouldn't wait. Do all these electrical injuries need to be transferred to a burn center? I think the vast majority of these patients do. I have had, I would say maybe a handful in the past couple of years where they've been actually low voltage injuries, but the provider didn't feel comfortable sending them home after the evaluation. And so we've had a couple of those patients who were admitted the outside referring facility and monitored for 24 hours. But I think the majority of patients, if they are having rhythm abnormalities, need to be evaluated in a burn center. And do we need to be getting troponins on these people as well? I tend to get troponins on them if there's a rhythm abnormality. I will get troponins if they have rhythm abnormalities or persistent chest pain. All right, we're going to switch scenarios again. Something that I think we have all seen is our older patients with COPD who are smoking on oxygen. So we've all seen these come in through the emergency department. So we have someone who comes in, they're walking, they're talking, they have some singed eyebrows and some singed nose hairs. How do we best assess for an inhalation injury in these patients? Because that's often why the trauma team will get called. My fellow actually did a really nice analysis of our adult admissions. And uh, these patients are 15% of our admissions at my burn center. (laughs) The adults over the age of 45, it is 15%. In retrospective studies in the patients that get intubated for this injury mechanism, almost none have documented inhalation injuries. So to get an inhalation injury, you need a prolonged exposure to superheated gases and inhalation of the products of incomplete combustion. That doesn't happen with this mechanism. This is a combustion of oxygen that is very short in duration, typically plastic tubing associated with the nasal cannula will burn and will give them a burn of their upper lips and maybe along their cheeks behind their ears. But if your face is on fire, you pull off the oxygen very quickly. So it's a very short duration of exposure and they bas- these patients basically do not meet the criteria for concern for inhalation injury. Of course, they do have singed nasal hairs because that's where their nasal prongs were um, and that's where the fire was. But really, almost none of these patients will have an inhalation injury. They may have a COPD exacerbation, which is not uncommon after this injury mechanism. And they may have swelling of their nasal turbinates that make giving them oxygen through their regular nasal cannula very difficult. But a lot of these patients will be hypoxic if you have their nasal cannula in. And if you just put them on a face mask or put their nasal cannula in their mouth, their SATs will come up to normal. So how best to care for these often uh, what looks to me like first degree facial burns that occur after this? So again, with those, you're going to do a lot of the same wound care that you would typically do for any other burn. You're going to wash daily with soap and water. And then if it's a first degree burn, usually just lotion is really all these patients need. Burns can kind of evolve and don't necessarily show their true depth right away. So just making sure that these patients have close follow-up. And then also, as Callie was talking about, having those nasal cannula cause nasal singeing and actually the nasal cannula can also melt off and kind of get stuck in the patient's nares and just gooping those up with a lot of petroleum-based Vaseline type products a lot of times will help loosen those up and eventually have that come out as well. 
And then is there a role for fluorescein testing in these patients? If they have ocular complaints, then yes, but otherwise not typically. How do you counsel them after this incident? You mean the first time they come to the burn center or the second time? <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Les- Leslin, Leslin, yes. do you have any tips for counseling? Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, just with love and science, like oxygen and spark, it's going to work this way. And maybe not every time, but maybe a lot enough to not do it. I've seen people come in multiple times for the same thing, and they're always surprised. So, <laughs> yeah, just love and science. That's all I got. I've often told them you need to pick one or the other, the smoking at the moment or the oxygen, but you can't do both. And, and either one is fine. Yeah, do yeah. what you're going to do. But you well, can't and I do You're going to do it, so just make sure you take the oxygen off. And that's what people mostly do. And people will come in and they'll say, I just forgot, you know, or I thought it was off. They're obviously not doing this every single time and they are smoking every day and it's not happening to them every day. So it's just the general population is going to be older that have oxygen because they've needed years to have the lung injury and, you know, they have worsening dementia or even just some baseline confusion or sundowning. I definitely feel like we see these patients more often late that happen late at night. And so it's, it is a challenge. Um, there are some things that we could potentially do legislatively as far as things like flame arresters. The VA actually requires flame arresters on all of their HOMO2 prescriptions now. So that is a device that goes on the oxygen tank that prevents the flame from going back up into the oxygen tank and having the oxygen tank explode. So while it's not going to prevent the burns on the face, it can potentially prevent structure fires or house fires, you know, worse injuries. Okay. We're going to switch a little bit now away from scenarios. I just want some, you guys to answer some basic questions for us non-burn surgeons. So for folks with smaller than 10% TBSA, not crossing a joint, so we don't think they need to come to a burn center, they're going to stay at our facility. How do we decide what burn needs a debridement? Say we're talking about second degree burns in the OR versus what burns can be debrided with something like silvadine? I think that depends on what the burn looks like. So frankly, third degree burns, dry, white, leathery, more insensate burns are going to need tangential excision in the operating room with some auto grafting. More superficial second degree burns, they're going to be pink, moist, more painful, are going to not necessarily require surgical intervention. And then there's kind of the deep second degree burn, which is I, I refer to it as the bane of all burden surgeons' existence because sometimes it heals on its own and sometimes it doesn't. And so kind of watchful waiting on those or talking to the patient and saying, hey, this may or may not heal on its own. You know, we can do wound care for a while or we can cut bait and run and go to the operating room. And letting them have some control and some say in that, I think, is is kind of my approach to it. Yeah, I am not a fan of taking second superficial second degree burns to the operating room. I know there's some places that do take them to the operating room for debridements. I think that those can be done with bedside sedation. 
the debridement of the blisters for second degree burns is, is basically, you know, sharp scissors to make sure you get, get all of that denuded tissue off, washcloth, washing it with soap and water and applying dressings. Uh, and then obviously full thickness burns need, as Lindsay said, tangential excision and grafting. For those deep partial thickness, I do exactly what Lindsay does, which is just, I have a conversation with the patient and they need to understand that they may go through two weeks of daily dressing changes and still need an operation. And a lot of people are willing to take that chance because they'd like to avoid going to the operating room. And some people say, you know, I got to get back to my job. I'm supporting my family. I can't do two weeks and then another two or three weeks if I need to have an operation. I'd just like to have an operation and get kind of moving along my recovery. So I just also wanted to say that one of the things about the burn center too, that I think is really beneficial to patients. Yes, we have our referral criteria, but I think that it's not just based on size for all patients needing a burn center. One of the great things about a burn center is it has a multidisciplinary team that addresses a lot of different aspects of patient care. And all these, you know, team members for us include our occupational therapist, our physical therapist, our counseling team, dietitian, our pharmacist, you know, everybody who gets involved with these, this patient care right from the very beginning. This is a very traumatic injury for a lot of patients, and it affects people very differently. Sometimes a tiny little burn is very, very traumatic to patients, whereas a bigger burn may not be. And so it really does just depend on the patient and making sure that their emotional needs are being addressed as well as their therapy needs, not just the wound care and the surgical aspect of the burn. I think making sure that those other things are addressed are really, really important for the patient. And if you're noticing some signs of PTSD or sleep disturbance or flashbacks or other things that are going on with the patient, making sure that they get those things addressed if they're not going to be treated in the burn center is crucial to their recovery as well. That's a great reminder. Thank you. So is Silvadine your drug of choice or are there other topicals that you all use and how do we decide what to use? So I think, you know, burn wound care I always say if you ask 10 burn surgeons what they would put on a burn, you'd get probably eight different answers <laughs> because everybody has their favorite thing. I use Silvadine on all of the obviously full thickness burns. It's great antimicrobial. It penetrates the eschar very well. And so that's what I will initially put on the big, obviously third degree burn when patients come in. Any second degree burn, either superficial or deep partial thickness, I tend to use bacitracin and Xeroform gauze. It's cheap. It's very easily accessible for patients. It has almost no systemic absorption. It just works very well and is it doesn't cause pain when it's applied. There are other dressings, things like Mepilex AG, which is a silver impregnated, essentially silicone foam that you can place on second degree burns for the manufacturer says up to 14 days. I don't tend to use it more than seven. And that's a great wound coverage. If you don't want to have to do daily wound care, you need a certain amount of moisture in the wound bed. So if you put that on an escar, a dry leathery burn, um, that silver is not going to be activated and it's not going to provide any antimicrobial coverage for that wound. So in general, as I think about burn wounds, I advise my residents, you need some kind of topical antimicrobial. You need something that's anti-stick, anti-shear, you need padding, and you need compression. And what you choose for those four things is really up to you. One other caution about sylvidine is that it does 
it's a great antimicrobial, but it also is toxic to cells and can actually inhibit um, the epidermal migration across the wound bed. So it may actually slow the healing of a second degree burn. It also causes this pseudo scar, just kind of a slimy, white, silvidine scum, white blood cells, dead skin cells that can actually hide your healing skin and it can lull you into thinking that pa- perhaps that patient needs an operation when they don't and it's it's painful to debride. That That I think has been the biggest frustration trying to keep patients at my center where there's not a burn center is that the nurses don't really know because perhaps they haven't been trained on how to do appropriate wound care. And so they'll put the silvadine down and the next day they just put more rather than kind of wiping it off and letting it do its manual debridement. And so it ends up just being a mess. And on that end, Leslin, I just want to ask you, do you have any tips and tricks around burn wound care for these patients that may be staying at a non-burn center? things that we can pass on to our nurses? It's soap and water and cleaning. <laughs> so the basics. And, and pain control. Yeah, it's just the basics. It, it's very, it is the basics. And not, not being scared to use pain medication and anxiety medication when appropriate or ordered, but also technique. It takes so much time because you really need to work with your patient with what they can do in that given moment. And you have to your ego has to go out the door and you have, you're the servant and that you have to work with your patient in a perfect world. (laughs) If you have the time and the resources is also there, but it's keeping people clean and doing their dressings correctly and then not making them crazy and stressed while you're at it. Mm -hmm. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, To add to that, it's not just cleaning the burn wound, it's cleaning the whole patient. Oh, the, yeah. the number Namaste. One, <laughs> yeah. the number one inoculant oh my God. is the adjacent skin. So you have yes. to clean all of the skin because whatever someone's colonized with is just going to jump over to that happy, n- nutrient-rich environment and it's going to cause an infection. Yes, indeed. The basics, the clean, for head to toe, wash your hair, get a shave, get everything cleaned, all the nooks and crannies every time. (laughs) So I do a lot of the same stuff that Callie does. The one other thing that we tend to use sometimes is also meta honey. Um, And that's more specifically with patients, more like a deep second degree burn or something with a bit of a pseudo escar presence that will kind of help. But that can be fairly painful for patients sometimes. Some patients tolerate it just fine and some people... It just creates a really awful burning sensation. So being aware of that. Have you ever put it on a wound (laughs) on yourself? Like get a little scrape. Yeah. Get a little scrape sometime and stick some meta honey on that. And then imagine having that all over your face or something. I know. (laughs) I have a very low threshold to to pull that off a patient. But they're like, Mm. you know, that's something you have to be aware of. If if they're miserable, that's not going to be a successful outcome for them because they're not going to be able (laughs) to do their therapy or their wound care or anything like that. But then I think the other thing to bring up is also as you're dressing patients, you know, the way Callie described it is really great and keeps it simple just because those are really the four components that you need, but making sure that at an outside center, we have patients who come in with like a tiny quarter size burn on like their palm and their hand will come in wrapped up like a huge lollipop, like just a huge amount of dressings and gauze. (laughs) 
and um, making sure that we really truly minimize that outdoor dressing so that we can allow for patients to do their therapy and to use that extremity because it's really important to mobilize these joints and mobilize these injured areas. And by completely wrapping an entire hand up in one big lollipop, it doesn't really allow for much of that. Yeah, like I always tell people, like a glove, not a mitten, so that <laughs> yeah. they remember that it, you have to have separation of fingers. There's also a great resource. The University of Washington has made an insane number of educational burn videos. And they're when, amazing. <laughs> when I get a call for a consult in a patient that I don't think necessarily, I review their photos, but I don't think they necessarily need to come to us immediately. They can follow up in clinic because it's a smaller burn. I always refer them to the therapy videos that are available UW surgeries. They have burn educational videos on their YouTube page and they have burn therapists, OTs and PTs doing therapy for every part of the body you can think of to be burned. So the patients can go to that YouTube video and do the hand exercises right along with the burn OT and get those instructions so that they're not falling behind, even if they're being seen in clinic 24 hours later. Yes, those have come in really handy in particular with the telemedicine. We've been doing more and more with patients during this pandemic because we have our therapists who can show them when they're on like our our telemedicine call, but we use those all the time in clinic too. And we've been able to really, really put those to great use here in the past week since we've been trying to limit inpatient clinic visits too. So one final question, and this is actually just from my own edification. Can you all tell me when you are doing skin grafts, what do you best like to dress your skin graft with and what do you use on your donor sites so if she if it's a she graft i will use wound veil and gauze and i will keep it dry and if it's a mesh graft my partner uses some meta honey on those i will use some zero form some people will use soaks, um, either Dakin's or Bosch or Sulfamylon, but a lot of times some Xeroform and Bacitracin on a smaller area. Again, with, with Wound Veil is the very top non-sheer layer, and then your dressing followed by gauze and compression. Yeah, and I, I kind of have a tiered, so I do the same for sheet grafts as Lindsay does. For meshed grafts, if it is a small wound, and not particularly contaminated. My preference is to do bacitracin and zeroform because the zeroform really conforms to the wound bed. And especially on an extremity, you can wrap it and get some good compression on that graft to make sure that it's appropriately approximated with the wound bed and it's going to engraft. If it's contaminated, I kind of have a tiered response. So I'll use Dakin soaks. If I'm mildly concerned, I'll use sulfamylon or maffinide soaks if I'm really concerned about the contamination of that wound. But in general, if it's a smaller wound, I, I just go pretty simply and use bacitracin and xeroform. For donors, the vast majority of my donors, I put in Mepilex AG. I know there's a lot of other folks who are using Suprathel, uh, which is another dressing that can be left in place until the wound heals underneath. But I just find Mepilex AG is, is nice. You can leave it on for you know, 10 days, they follow up in clinic and you can take it off and they're almost healed underneath. That's what we do also for our donor sites too. It's a a great dressing and really decreases pain of daily dressing changes for patients on that donor site. Well, ladies, thank you so much for sharing all of your experience and knowledge with us. This has been so helpful and I hope will be so helpful to folks who are not burn experts like yourselves. Thank you. This is great.
Thank you for Thanks having for us. Thanks for having us. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East. East.